Today's lesson is a humiliated king. We find this in 2 Kings chapter 11 and 12, and then 2 Chronicles chapters 22 to 24. Ahab, the king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel brought great wickedness and idolatry into the land, leading their people far astray from the one true God. And Ahab's influence spread to Judah when his daughter Athaliah married Jehoram, the king of Judah. Through the word of Elisha, a general from Israel named Jehu brought judgment upon all the house of Ahab, killing the wicked kings of both kingdoms who were descended from him. The power vacuum in Judah was quickly and violently filled by, by Athaliah, the queen mother, but even she did not escape God's judgment and was replaced by the rightful king, Joash. Another aspect of life that must be proven over time is the reality of one's faithfulness. The kings of Judah and Israel were a master class of faithfulness and unfaithfulness in action. Some kings were clearly one or the other. Some were a mixture of both. But the pivot from which a faithful king turned, unfaithful hinged on pride. If you think highly of yourself, you will lose your grip on what matters. You will lose your focus on God. In Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, God tells us where he dwells. I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. It is tempting for kings to try to reach that high and holy place, but they cannot get there unless they follow the better path of humility, where God waits with open arms. The first point of this lesson is a faithful king restores the proper worship of God. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 6, and then 13 through 14. Afterward, Joash took it to heart to renovate the Lord's temple. So he gathered the priests and Levites and said, Go out to the cities of Judah and collect silver from all Israel to repair the temple of your God as needed year by year, and do it quickly. However, the Levites really did not hurry. So the king called Jehoiada, the high priest, and said, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by the Lord's servant Moses and the assembly of Israel for the tent of testimony? The workmen did their work, and through them the repairs progressed. They restored God's temple to its specifications and reinforced it. When they finished, they presented the rest of the silver to the king and Jehoiada, who made articles for the Lord's temple with it, articles for ministry, and for making burnt offerings and ladles and articles of gold and silver. They regularly offered burnt offerings in the Lord's temple throughout Jehoiada's life. It's important for us to remember that the Levites are God's selected tribe of Levi to maintain their religious duties of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Only selected men from the family of Aaron, however, were to offer the sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple as priests. Thus, all priests were Levites, 
but not all Levites were priests. Atalia, the daughter of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel, and the wife of King Jehoram of Judah, her son Ahaziah became the king of Judah, but was soon assassinated. So she had all his heirs but one executed, and she, in turn, usurped the throne. She ruled Judah for seven years until the priest Jehoiada led a revolt to execute her and to name Joash as king. She was, note that she was the only female monarch to sit on David's throne, though she was not of David's royal lineage. In the life of God's people, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, nothing was more important than the temple. Chart the story and you'll see that as the temple went, so went the people. It was the center of their life with God and their faithfulness was played out in his presence. When King Joash sought to renovate the temple, it was a sign to God's people that a faithful one was on the throne. Joash had good reason for doing such a wonderful thing. The temple was his early childhood home. When he was an infant, his grandmother, Athaliah, usurped the throne and sought to annihilate all their royal heirs. Joash's aunt and uncle took him and hid him from Athaliah for the first six years of his life, protected him in the bowels of the temple. Joash grew up in the arena of worship, surrounded by the mercy and grace of God. But the temple itself during that time was raided and neglected by Athaliah. In Joash's seventh year, his uncle the priest Jehoiada overthrew Athaliah and set things right by crowning Joash, David's descendant, as king. Moving from the shadows of the temple to the spotlight of the throne, it was now time for Joash to reign over God's people. Safe from the threat of violence and securely seated on the throne, Joash looked at his old home and saw its need. With the power to do something about its dilapidated condition, Joash's faith sprung into action, but not all were accommodating. Joash asked the priests and Levites, the proper responsible parties, to collect a yearly offering to fund the temple's repairs and to do so quickly, but for some reason they delayed instead. For 23 years, these spiritual leaders ignored their responsibility from their king and to their lord. So Joash commanded his uncle Jehoiada, the high priest, to make it happen. An ancient Mosaic tax was recalled, and the people rejoiced to contribute to the restoration of the Lord's temple. Under Joash's command, Jehoiada succeeded in raising the necessary funds which were used to purchase supplies and to hire craftsmen, stonecutters, carpenters, blacksmiths, coppersmiths, all to restore the temple to its former glory. They did their work well, and the repairs progressed until finally, after two decades of waiting, the work was finished and the temple was restored and reinforced. 
The money left over was then brought to Joash and Jehoiada. He used the remaining silver and gold to make articles and utensils for use in the ministry of the temple. In addition to repairing the, the building, the ritual sacrifices were renewed, such that the burnt offerings were regularly made by priests in the temple all the days of Jehoiada's life. These two influential men, Joash and Jehoiada, were faithful together before the Lord. They built what was torn down, restored what was broken, and repaired what was wounded. These actions were the most natural thing in the world for their roles in Israel, the kind of work a king and a priest ought to be about. They were acting here as types of Christ to come, serving God's people in priestly and kingly ways to usher people into God's presence. God's temple was their priority, and God's worship was their focus. By all external accounts, they not only completed, but abounded in the work of the Lord, and God was glorified in Judah. This indeed was a great start to the reign of Joash. Perhaps the right man was now on the throne, another man after God's own heart, a promised son of David, a just and righteous king, a foreshadow of Jesus, the greater king to come. Joash worshipped God. He worked for God. He served God's people. We see the outward appearance, and it was good, but God sees the heart. Joash led his people well in this early stage of his reign, but his godly influence, it seems, was tied exclusively to his godly mentor, Jehoiada. And after that mentor died, Joash led in an entirely different direction. The second point of this lesson is a forgetful king reverts to the worship of idols. However, after Jehoiada died, the rulers of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and served the Asherah poles and the idols. So there was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Nevertheless, he sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord they admonished to admon they admonished them, but the people would not listen. The Spirit of God enveloped Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, This is what God says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands, so that you do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father Jehoiada had extended to him, but killed his son. While he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and demand an account. That was 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 to 22. Things in Judah were going well for a time, specifically for as long as the high priest Jehoiada lived. But when he died, everything changed. Jehoiada had done what was good in Israel, protecting the rightful king, installing that king, and helping to restore the temple. We also see that his godly influence while he was alive kept Joash in line. 
After Jehoiada died, the rulers of Judah came to Joash to pay him homage as king. What did they say to the king? Whatever it was, it was persuasive enough to get Joash to listen to them, to abandon his former focus on the Lord and to press on to different arenas of worship. Perhaps this turning point in Joash's reign was a slow fade, or maybe as the chronicler seems to suggest, it was an immediate about face. No matter the time frame, the important point is that King Joash led Judah to drift from the worship of God to the worship of idols. That drift started within his own heart, and as the leaders of the nation went, so went the people. We tend to become what our leaders are. <clears throat> the chronicler tells us what happened in blunt terms. They abandoned the temple and the God of their ancestors, and instead they went after the Asherah poles and the idols. Here was the tragedy of the greatest order. Notice that God did not abandon them. They abandoned him. God had not moved. They did. The temple of the Lord was before them, repaired and open, but their hearts sought out false gods. Asherah was a fertility goddess of the Canaanites and closely associated with the more familiar idol, Baal. It may sound odd to our modern ears that anyone would leave the Lord to worship idols, but in reality it still happens today. Our idols may not be carved structures, but they are idols nonetheless. Whatever our hearts do or love more than God is an idol. Whatever we live for in competition to God is an idol. We may struggle with the perception, but idol worship is still the biggest rebellion around even today. The temple Joash had worked so feverishly to repair, he later abandoned the place of holy worship to the Lord, his early childhood home. He left in favor of unholy worship and the God under whose grace and mercy he grew up. He rejected for the fruitless service of idols. That treacherous act had grave consequences. God's wrath was against Joash and Judah and Jerusalem, for they were all guilty. Once again, it all came down to worship. One of life's most significant lessons, jumping from the page, is that our worship is far more important than we tend to believe. We are what we worship. It defines and directs our hearts. What was God's response to his people's abandonment of worship in the temple? We already see that God's wrath was set against the people, but then he did something surprising, at least from our perspective. The Lord sent them prophets. It would be a tragedy to miss the importance of this statement. Instead of dismissing those who abandoned him, as we, as we likely would do, the Lord mercifully sent them messengers to correct and call them home. Yet people still would not listen. The chronicler here mentioned one prophet in particular to highlight just how far Joash and the people had fallen. The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, Jehoiada's son and Joash's cousin. 
This spirit was not an angel or an afterthought. The spirit of God is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. The one true God of Israel was invested in the physical and spiritual well-being of his people. Under the inspiration of, his, of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah declared the truth of the national situation with boldness. Because Judah was disobeying, they were suffering. In Zechariah's reward for his obedience, a pile of stones. In his pride, King Joash chose to forget the kindness Jehoiada had shown him so that he could murder Jehoiada's son and maintain the ignorance of his idolatry. Therefore, true to Zechariah's final cry, the Lord would demand an account. The Lord saw Joash's descent, and he would avenge his servant. The third point in this lesson is the fallen king receives the judgment of God. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 23 and 25. At the turn of the year, an Aramean army attacked Joash. They entered Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people among them and sent all the plunder to the king of Damascus. Although the Aramean army came with only a few men, the Lord handed over a vast army to them because the, Lord, the people of Judah had abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So they executed judgment on Joash. When the Arameans saw that Joash had many wounds, they left him. His servants conspired against him and killed him on his bed because he had shed the blood of the sons of the priest of Jehoiada. So he died and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. The Arameans, also known as the Syrians, were a loose group of towns and tribes northeast of the king of Israel that fought together when they needed and disbanded when they and disbanded when they weren't needed. King Haziel and his son Ben-Hadad oppressed both Israel and Judah in the 9th century BC. Their major city was Damascus and their major contribution in history was the Aramaic language. Zechariah's dying prayer was soon answered by the Lord in stages. The first stage involved the Aramean army. It sounds like a fictional story. Judgment coming after an omen is spoken. But it is history. The Aramean army entered Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed their leaders, and sent the plunder away. The Arameans must have wondered how it could be poss possibly have been such an easy battle. The Aramean army wasn't a big one, only a few men against Joash's vast army. How could they have achieved such an upset victory? The answer is simple. The Lord, even a small army with the power of God behind them, will defeat the largest army in the world, who does not have the Lord with them. And Joash's army was powerless because they had abandoned the Lord. In their history... Israel had often been the underdog, undergirded by the strength of the Lord, but on this occasion they suffered defeat for their sin. Here we step into the mystery of God's work in the world. Joash and the people of Judah had abandoned the Lord, 
and they had conspired together to murder the Lord's prophet. According to Zechariah's dying prayer, these charges demanded the Lord's justice. Because the Lord is just, he acted to punish these offenders. God used the Aramean army to bring his judgment upon Judah. Does this implicate God in doing evil since the Arameans were a pagan people? Well, actually by no means. In his sovereignty, in a way we cannot quite understand, God could use the Aramean army without getting his hands dirty. The Arameans, Arameans excuse me, attack of their own accord, but it was the will of God that they do so. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are both upheld in these events. The Arameans were not good people, and they would be judged themselves. But on this day, it was God's people who would see judgment by the decree of God. The sovereign God uses even those who don't know him to accomplish his purposes. Joash's problem wasn't strategic or tactical, but it was theological and spiritual. He had abandoned the God of his ancestors and led his people to do the same. So the Lord handed them over to the Arameans. Instead of resting in the goodness of God, they looked out at the world and considered it better. They actually left the Lord their God, and for this reason, judgment was executed against Joash in particular. To abandon the Lord is the greatest act of treason possible, and it would be unjust of God not to bring judgment. Sin has consequences, and though the sound, that sounds like bad news to us, it's actually very good news. God is a God of justice who will one day set all things right. On one stage of God's judgment was complete, was complete here. Two more remained. Judah had suffered an illogical military defeat, which resulted in the deaths of the leaders who persuaded Joash to pursue idols instead of the one true God. Joash himself was also severely wounded, but the Arameans left him alive. For stage two, Joash was assassinated by two of his own servants while he lay on his bed. Joash had abandoned the Lord to go after idols, dead things, and since we are what we worship, he too became a dead thing. The two conspirators, sons of Ammonite and Moabite women, murdered the king because he had conspired to kill Zechariah. These sons of foreigners showed more regard for Jehoiada than the wayward king who was raised by him. And for stage three, a dishonoring death, Joash was not buried with the other kings of Judah. A promising young king of Judah once again ended with rebellion against God, and God faithfully judged him. But one day, the faithful king would come, live a perfect life, and take upon himself all our sin at his death. And because of him, because of Jesus, by faith in him, we can be saved from the judgment our sins deserve and dwell forever in the presence of the Lord. I want to close this lesson today with a voice from church history. 
David Clarkson, who lived from 1622 to 1686, said, Every man in the state of nature makes an idol of himself, exalts himself when he should advance God, minds himself more than he minds God, aims at himself when he should aim at God, rests in himself when he should depend upon God, loves himself more than God, honors himself more than God, seeks himself more than God, would have that ascribed to himself, which is to be ascribed only to God, would have himself eyed, admired, praised more than God. Self-conceit, self-love, self-seeking, they are all secret strains of idolatry, and ourselves are naturally our own idols. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you overcome the idols in our life and that you open our eyes to them. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to maintain our focus on Jesus and not to stray to these idols in life that overtake our path. And Lord, I ask you to send the Holy Spirit just to, to be with those who are sick and hurting today that you would just heal them and restore them and comfort them. Raise them up. And Lord, I ask you to send the Holy Spirit to direct everyone who listens to this lesson's past, to open their eyes to the idols around them, and to show them who they should share your love with this week and who we need to... to Show the love and light of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died for our sins. For it's in his holy, precious name that I pray. Amen.